Hello and welcome to the Women's Agenda podcast. My name is Angela Priestley and I'm here with our Women's Agenda co-hosts. I've got Shivani Gopal and Georgie Dent staring at me on the screen. How are you both today? Great. The sun is out and it's a Friday. Fabulous. Is it a Friday? I don't even know what day it is anymore. Like, I know. And is there any difference? Is there much? Oh, well, obviously there is for some people, but uh, around here, oh, look, I'm well, but um, Friday is going to be probably a lot like a lot of the other days. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of blending into each other. I was trying to think of what week of isolation this actually is. And I, I don't think I can even get it close to like a round of up to five. I don't even know. Is it five? Is it seven? Is it 10? I don't think it's that many, but. Or is it a hundred? We've. Frankly, yeah. around here, it feels like we're in week 100 of, and actually even even last night, just when I was putting the older kids to bed, my nine-year-old said, she goes, mum, I just, I really just want to like go outside and just do things. Like it's as if we're not even allowed to do that. And I was like, well, it's not as if that, it is that we cannot go out and do things. So that's why you're feeling exactly. Yeah. Right. These are strange times. So today on the podcast, we are talking we're, we're, we're talking about a, a wide range of topics and we're trying to extend a little bit beyond the pandemic. But I mean, obviously that is kind of underscoring everything right now, but we will talk about the glass cliff phenomenon and uh, Raylene Castle, who has just stepped down as CEO of Rugby Australia. Uh, we are also discussing sexism. Uh, the sexism that is everyday sexism that's still occurring at the moment and is particularly uh, evident for, for prominent women who are experiencing it on social media. Also, we'll share a few things that are on our minds this week. But, I mean, Shivani, I did just want to start by asking you, what are you actually looking forward to post this period of isolation? So much, Angela. Um, I, could, I could rattle off a list for days. But I think the first thing that I'm looking forward to, and I never thought I'd say this, it's just good old normality, good old routine. You know, I want to wake up. And I want to go to the gym like I used to. And this time I'll be super grateful for it. And then I'll go to a cafe and sit down and have a breakfast. And then my day continues and <laughs> I, will then, <laughs> I will then get dressed up with the girlfriends and we'll go for a long boozy lunch that never ends. I'll probably drag myself in at some ungodly hour and, uh, and that is my ideal day post-ISO eventually. Right. Georgie, what's your ideal day or hour? I would like to, to join Shivani. I do think I have said that. I have said you're to, invited, Georgie. Thank you. I will be there. Uh, I have said to a few people, I am, I'm an extroverted person. I really like socializing. I miss being like going out to a restaurant with lots of other people or being in a bar or just being out, you know, with the kids at someone else's house, you know, not these four walls. Um, I, yeah, I mean, there are lots of little and big things that I'm looking forward to, but definitely just being with groups of people is something I can't wait to do again. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. I, I think I'm really, I, I want to see the things that you take for granted, like going to a class at a gym, like a spin class or something would be amazing. But also I really want to see my kids socializing with other kids. I'll just be so happy to see them playing with other kids um, in a way that, you know, is physical in the way that kids do. I do wonder when we look at how things will end or when restrictions are being lifted, I mean, I think it's kind of clear that it won't all just happen quite suddenly, that it is going to be a slow thing where, like, certain restrictions are lifted. And I don't think it's going to be a day where we kind of wake up and think, oh, we get to do all these things now. Mm. Unfortunately, 
I think it's going to be a little, it'll be like being able to catch up with a friend, maybe a single friend or maybe one or two friends at a time. Maybe we will be able to go to a cafe and have a coffee, but I don't think we're going to be able to go to bars and sit in uh, places indoors for, for long amounts of time, anytime for the next few months. So, I mean, hopefully if we can just get to the point soon of, I think being able to go to somebody else's house or just being able to interact um, with other people in ways that is not necessarily just a, a socially distanced uh, exercising walk. So we'll get there eventually. But um, well, I think the other thing to remember is even though we have been in the current situation now for several weeks, we did, it was a gradual process of sort of limiting different activities. So it wasn't really like we woke up one day and then absolutely everything was gone. And I think it'll be mm-hmm. the same in reverse in that it won't be just one day, absolutely everything is open again and it's all on as per it always was. You know, it will be a gradual um, process. But I think hopefully in that way we will enjoy the little things. I mean, I'm excited. I don't know how this return to school in New South Wales is going to pan out as planned, but with kids going back one day a week. But I honestly think my kids will be so excited when that is a safe situation and they can do that. I know that is going to be the best day of their week um, by a long way. And yeah. isn't that amazing? You know, looking forward to a future where kids are actually excited and grateful to go to school. There's <laughs> not going to be any tantrums, I can imagine, where kids are like, I don't want to go to school today because they actually get to go to school today. So... Yeah. That's great. That's going to be a great change. Yeah, yes. this is just an extraordinary thing around gratitude for what our, our our kids will be grateful for, what we'll all be grateful for going forward. So, yeah, we'll wait and see how it pans out. But um, on to our topics for today. So, so just over two years ago, Australia got its first uh, female footy boss, which is how. Um, I, I read that we had as, as a headline on Women's Agenda at the time. So when Raylene Castle was appointed CEO of Rugby Australia. So it was a huge and significant breakthrough for women in leadership. But uh, Raylene Castle was also, and it was documented at the time, she was re- really taking on a very, very tough job when the sport had really been in decline, was facing a lot of issues. And it has been a tough period ever since. Um, there was a disappointing performance of the World Cup. Code is facing a lot of debt. There's that whole uh, protracted uh, legal battle with Israel Folau. So last night, Raylene Castle announced that she was stepping down from the role, and that follows quite a lot of pressure from various sides, um, pressure that also was telling the board to step down as well. But it did get us thinking on Women's Agenda about the glass cliff phenomenon. And this is a topic that we have explored in different ways many times before. And we've reported on different little bits of research that have come out on the, on the phenomenon as well. So the glass cliff, if you don't know, it is the idea that women are given the opportunity to take on a leadership role during the organisation's crisis or downturn. And Theresa May uh, in the UK taking on that job after Brexit, she is the... Uh, the perfect example of this. And if you go on Google, Theresa May and Glass Cliff, as I did earlier today, you do receive about 10,000 results and different stories and articles that talk about her in that context. Um, so now, Georgie, do you think Raylene Castle ever had much of a chance in this role? And what do you make of the Glass Cliff at this time? I mean, I want to ask this, Um, I guess also in the context of COVID-19, because right now a lot of organisations are going to be going through a lot of challenges. And I wonder if we do, will start to see more women appointed to these roles at this time. What do you think, Georgie? 
Mm. Yeah, look, I think there's a lot that is interesting uh, about um, the situation that Raylene Castle has faced. I think that you're absolutely right that when she took on the role, there were already a number of key challenges. Um, and I think that, you know, on, on a really basic level, as you said, she was the first female to be appointed head of a um, football code in Australia, which is quite significant. And it's significant because traditionally these positions have always been held by the people who are most interested in these games who happen to be generally white middle-class men. And so she is automatically, her appointment is sort of unusual because she is an outsider from that traditional mould of, of who, who has been running a football organisation. There was certainly a lot of challenges there. I think, though, what's really the big thing that you cannot go past currently with her experience at the helm of the AIU is the Israel Folau situation. Because and, and even um, she gave a really interesting interview with um, ABC 7.30 um, on Thursday night. And she actually gave that interview in the afternoon, hours before she resigned, um, which sort of indicates that the decision was, I'm sure it had been contemplated for a long time, but certainly things moved quickly. And I think you have to say that is due to the increasing pressure that was being applied to her. Um, but, you know, she made the point that when, as an organisation, she was in the position of having to face a really high-profile, talented star, make comments not just once but twice that were completely out of line with what the organisation's stated values are and were. And she said that she had a lot of leaders reach out to her from business, politics, sport to say this is an incredible challenge. We don't know what we would do in your situation. And she, they, they did, they let him go. And that was the, I think that was the only option that she had because when you consider what he had said and you consider Rugby Australia's stance on same-sex marriage, these positions were so far apart. But I think it is interesting now that there is this view that she somehow managed that situation so badly or that that was of her own making. Certainly how she managed it is something you can, you know, hold her accountable for, but it wasn't a situation that she designed. And I don't know how any leaders, whether they're male or female, would approach that challenge in a way that got a better result because it was already, it was going to be a devastating situation, however it was managed. Um, so I guess it's that's sort of a long-winded answer, but I think that there's a lot that is interesting about her time in that role. And I think that um, there were already problems Israel Folau created an enormous problem on top of those. And then we've, we're also, you know, all of the sporting codes are now facing this sort of unprecedented issue in terms of how do we maintain our games and revenue in the midst of this global health pandemic. And, I mean, obviously this week the head of the NRL was also, um, also resigned after there was pressure on his job. You know, it's a similar situation. And I think it is interesting that in these sort of crisis times, I would think that perhaps this is the time that you stick with who you have. But obviously that's not the view that a number of organisations are having and they do think that in this time of crisis, having a change is, is critical. Um, I think that I'm not sure Rugby Australia would have approached and embraced a female leader in perfectly sunny times. So I think you can definitely say that Raylene Castle's appointment was a glass cliff scenario. Um, I think it's really disappointing that her tenure has ended the way that it has because um, 
some who are more informed than I would. And what I've read is that the writing was on the wall because there were a lot of people that didn't ever accept her. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I heard there was a way that uh, Lee Sales put it in a question last night where she made the point. um, She said, you know, being an outsider, do you feel that you have actually copped more criticism because, and she, you know, not only you're a woman, but you're a Kiwi and you're in this sport that is really uh, dominated by middle-aged men. So she really was an outsider there. And I think in sport, it is this one area as well that is just so uniquely challenging for women. I mean, obviously there are many challenges for women in leadership, but in sport, I mean, there is such high levels of passion and fans and people's seeing how the game is run and people always having a view about how they would be able to run it better. And so you see how women in sporting leadership positions cop so much negativity and abuse on social media particularly and I'm sure that the men do as well but it, it, it can take a different form on social uh, for, for women and it can it can involve a lot of sexism and we've seen so many examples of that it really is it, it just really is this area where we just really need to get a lot more women into those leadership positions I think to make it seem a lot more normal because it still carries that idea of um, you know you didn't play the game at a higher level what right do you have to be to be making these decisions yeah, and it's it's that classic numbers game that if there's only one female chief executive of a particular code and there's only ever been one female, everything they do is more visible, you know, and the, the NRL chief, um, Todd Greenberg, can be stood down or resign. I'm sorry, he was not stood down, but he can resign without that being about his gender because every CEO of the NRL to this point has been a man. So it's not, it's not relevant. Women still don't enjoy that sort of opportunity for, um, to sort of blend into the background. Their being female is front and centre because it does make them so unusual. Mm-hmm. Shivani, what do you make of the glass cliff phenomenon? Is it something that you believe is out there? Do you, how do you think it might play out during this time now? Mm. Well, look, it's certainly a problem that's out there. And the closest analogy that I can think of with the glass cliff um, in the everyday world that we live in is that women are all too often reeled in to solve problems. Culturally, women are, um, you know, conditioned to fix broken men, you know, and it's um, I will be there for you, you know, through thick and thin. And if you're going through all of this, then I will be the person to counsel you. And, and help you through this rather than a man being responsible for his own actions. So women have always, you know, been cultured and conditioned to behave in this way. And so lo and behold, women tend to get reeled in as these sort of opportunity hires that, you know, we've gone up, we've gone off and, you know, we've had all these problems or perhaps we've stuffed up on our own accord, but we're going to reel in a woman to fix the problems because it's, it's um, you know, it's married in, in, in everyday life in that way. And I think that's incredibly problematic women Georgie as you said earlier um, you know because we should be having equal opportunity for leadership positions for women in any case we don't and when women are given these opportunities they're given it with much higher stakes which makes them far more visible when things do go wrong and um, and it becomes a gendered problem and certainly women when when they do lead they are seen with a much harsher lens um, then uh, under which men are judged. So when, you know, if things start to go astray, it then become, again, a gender problem because you had a female-based leader. And if things don't work out for her, then it becomes, again, a gender problem that women leaders don't work out for these and these reasons, as opposed to that specific leader did not work out for X, Y, Z reasons. 
Um, so I, I tend to see that quite a lot. And I see that correlation between, you know, the glass cliff um, and, and bringing women in. And I, I also think that because women, again, from a, you know, from a society perspective, are not seen as the natural born leaders. Of course, we know that we're all leaders. Uh, we're all leaders of our own lives. We're all leaders of our own narratives. Um, and it's up to us to, you know, take that choice and pursue careers in, in those areas if we, if we so wish to. But because we're not brought up in that way, because we're brought up in a way that we've still got the perspectives of, you know, the last century still within, still within us in generations today, women leadership is seen as unnatural. And so when men display leadership um, you know, attributes such as being assertive and being firm or, you know, uh, making hard calls, as, as again, you talked about, um, it, it is seen as the unnatural choice and therefore more likely, more easier to be criticised versus men. Mm. So that's, that's sort of my musings on, on this sound. Yeah, well, they're, they're good musings. So, and related to this topic now and speaking of uh, social media and, and also of Lee Sales, um, just some of the everyday sexism that is casually occurring on social media. So this week, Lee Sowes, uh, she went and she took to social media herself to highlight the sexualized social media abuse that women in the public eye constantly face. Um, and to make the point, she shared a screenshot capturing uh, just a handful of some of the recent messages that she received. And Georgie has written about this this week on women's agenda. Um, so Georgie, I guess it's one of those things, again, at this time, you just sort of think, don't people have better things to do? But we did make the point at the top of the conversation before we started recording, we we're talking about the fact that what can we say about, um, you know, the everyday sexism that, that maybe the three of us continue to receive? And George, you made the point, well, we're not really leaving our houses much, so it's kind of settled down. But it hasn't stopped on social media, has it? No, not at all. And, I mean, I think, I think what's interesting is that, the screenshots that Lee Sale shared this week, I think there were five, um, and, you know, they, they all made similar points that she's obviously um, either sleeping with someone or she wants to sleep with someone and that that somehow, um, you know, explains whichever interview that she's done. And a lot of female journalists immediately sort of um, responded with, yep, yeah, it's, it's unbearable, this happens all the time. It's so, I guess it was interesting to me how... They certainly weren't the most vile messages I've ever seen on social media, um, but they're just par for the course. And I think the point that she was making is that that is just the routine background that so many women in the public eye face. And she made the point that it doesn't matter if you're Peter Credlin or Julia Gillard or anyone in between, mm. there is this sort of sexualized component to the online abuse. And that is something that I have certainly noticed when I have been um, at the centre of sort of unpleasant social media abuse I always find it interesting how much of how much how much of the comments that really disturb me have got a sexual connotation to them that it's somehow um you know that you couldn't possibly disagree with a female without bringing her sexuality into it somehow and I thought the other thing I found quite curious was the debate underneath um the post that Lee made this week and obviously the one, the big interview that she'd done this week um, was with the former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull about his book, um, which has just been released. And what I found really interesting was that so many of the people commenting really got into quite a detailed debate and argument about whether or not her interview with Malcolm Turnbull was fair. And the mm. thing I thought was, even if her interview was a woeful train wreck, her 
sexuality, who she might be sleeping with, why she's performing these sorts of sexual tasks on, on another person is completely irrelevant. And yet for people who, who, from my reading, are not ever going to engage in that sort of base language over social media, but they still can't recognise that there's a totally separate issue here and that women should be able to go about their lives without facing this sexualized social abuse. Knock yourself out if you're going to be critical of somebody's professional skills. You know, I mean, I don't, there's certainly a lot of that. Every female journalist gets it. Lee sales probably more than most. But it doesn't have to be linked to these sort of sexual slurs the way that it is. And I think it's not new, but I do think it's really important to point it out because it takes a toll. Um, I don't see how it cannot take a toll. The only way, and I think, I think Jane Caro has made this point before, that the only way those sorts of comments mean absolutely nothing to you is if you become not a human being. Because even though you can um, brush it off and you can have your own coping mechanisms for recognising that that's not um, a valid viewpoint, it's not appropriate, you're still a human being. And when someone writes something vile about you, it comes at a cost. Mm, yeah yeah absolutely and and I mean the thing about you know yeah go and you, you can be critical of somebody's interviewing style you can be critical of the story they've written whatever it is um and the reality is that it's actually more difficult to be critical in a non-sexualized way so often it's just it's the easy way out and it's the simplest thing to do and especially for a woman it's the, the quickest way to to make a comment mm. um but really it does take a lot more to be able to and it requires a lot more substance to be able to make a critical comment without having to, to go to those levels. What do you think, Shivani? Yeah, look, just on that, it takes intellect to mm. be able to, you know, give someone comment or critique on their actual, um, you know, professional topic that they're talking about as opposed to just doing your standard at home and just saying, you know, what, I'm just going to knock you down instead because I actually don't understand what you're saying. Perhaps I don't have the brain power to understand what you're saying. Um, and that's what I, that's my self-talk. That's my coping mechanism to everyday sexism whenever that happens to me. I know that whenever I'm doing, um, you know, TV-based media, I, um, I do cop a lot of um, sexist-based comments. Um, and I think, look, if you're going to comment about who I am, my very womanhood, uh, or the second thing that I get commented on is, is ethnicity, um, you know, obviously being brown and, and, and not being white, heaven forbid. I mean, in, in 2020, you know, you know, why is this even a talking point? And it shouldn't have been a talking point for decades prior in any case. Um, but, but I tend to sort of, you know, placate myself by saying, well, if they really have something important to say, then they would have the intellect to do so. Um, mm. And so they don't. But I, I think it's incredibly... Um, woeful that you know we women have to you know cop this kind of abuse um, and um, and it's certainly again you know a, a gendered issue um, and it's one that you know you know really sort of starts to knock it out at our own womanhood uh, I was sort of you know having to think about when I saw Lee Fowles's uh, screenshots you know my own sort of experiences of everyday sexism and you know, there's a couple that I think I've already talked about, you know, on this podcast, but, you know, just in case some of our listeners haven't heard it, and there's one that I haven't mentioned, which really struck me today was, you know, um, in going into business and, um, and you know, scoping some of the right people that might be good future business partners for me, um, one of the most common questions that I was asked is what my, uh, what my motherhood plans were. And it became really clear to me that as a woman, your capability to be able to be successful in business 
um, seems to be judged, not that it should be, but it seems to be judged on your timeline of motherhood. Um, and, and that's taken into account. Whereas, you know, male business leaders certainly won't ask that question. And I, and I think that's a very harsh reality that we have, we have to live with where, you know, many women are almost synthesizing this going, well, I suppose it's a rational question. I suppose I should answer it. Um, but the thing is, I suppose that women, men aren't asked this question. So you've got to think about it, you know, in that way as well. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, throw the question right back. I, are you asking this to absolutely everybody? Mm. Mm. I also think um, I, I I got a comment this week um, from someone and uh, on on this topic about sexism and sort of online shaming and things. And it was a woman who said that she was on a um, a work meeting and one of her work colleagues privately messaged her to say how appalling it was that her children were misbehaving in the background. Oh, and oh. she said she just felt so humiliated, which I can completely relate to because. I think that if, I mean, if anyone ever called your sort of professionalism into question or your parenting into question, they are quite sort of vulnerable hot button issues. And I just thought immediately, I am positive that if a man was at home and his children were misbehaving, no one would be sending him a private message saying, oh my gosh, how dare your children misbehave. They would be thinking, well, Georgie, where is the mother? Why isn't the mother looking after those children? Why? Or what a hero he is because he's at home looking after the children. Yeah. Hmm. And Georgie, on that, if I can give you a very public example of that, was Chris Hemsworth recently doing an interview promoting his upcoming film on Netflix. And, uh, and his son, you know, interrupted the, the Zoom interview very rudely. And he said, oh, sorry, that's just my son. And, you know, the entire country had a laugh at it and went, you know, even he's, you know, struggling from it. But he was all in all applauded. And it was, you mm. know, good on you, mate. And, um, and, you know, let's join in on this rather than, you know, let's judge you for this. So you're, mm. you're, you're very right. I just think there are so many examples of where the standards that we're held to are just completely different. And it, I think that it's quite alarming how quickly there is this sort of sexualized language, you know, that if a woman is succeeded, that, oh, who has she slept with? Or if a woman has got a positive relationship with a man or a woman, well, there's obviously a sexual component to that. It, it, there just seems to be this sort of wiring among so many people that, whatever a woman is doing, you can bring it back to somehow her sex, you know, mm. and, and how that is being expressed and whether she's manipulating it or whether she's being manipulated. It's so, it seems so difficult to just let a woman be and judge her the way that you would in a man. Mm. I wonder if, I mean, at this time with some of this, maybe not so much because some of it we're talking about like straight out harassment, but then we're also talking about sexism. Um, and I think obviously there's different levels between them. But right now, the example, Georgie, that you gave of, um, and, and then Chris Hemsworth as well, of having the kids in the background, if anything, this is a bit of a leveller, this period, that women are working from home and men are trying to work from home. There are things that are going to get way out of whack. And we've had a great piece on this as well, where women are um, taking up a lot more of the unpaid work at this time as well because they're having to do some schooling for kids. They're at home looking after kids that may otherwise be in care or they've, they've taken over from grandparents, whatever it is. But at the same time, I mean, I would like to think that when it comes to uh, knowledge work and the office work that is now being done in homes, that seeing more men having their kids around will 
at least start to normalize the situation for other men. And if some of this goes forward and I mean, we're all learning how to, how to use a lot more video conferencing tools and collaboration tools and realizing that a lot of the work that we thought we had to go to an office for can actually be done from home. So I do think that when I mean, we talked at the beginning of the conversation about when this period switches off, there's an ice cream truck going in, on in the background, which I find like ice cream's not the kind of thing I'd be wanting to um, eat right now, but it's going, thankfully my kids don't actually know that it's an ice cream truck because strategically I've never responded to the music, always knowing that otherwise I'd be heading out to get an ice cream each time it goes past. But leaving that aside, um, I was talking about normalizing this idea of having our kids at home. So I don't think we're going to turn off the switch for the people who are able to work from home at the moment and everyone's just going to suddenly be going back to an office. Mm. So I think we're at like a point where even mm. if we can get to the point of getting this virus under control, the people have seen some benefits of this work from home thing. So I think some of it will continue. And also we're going to enter some kind of hybrid situation as well with work from home where, um, you know, while this virus is still going on, companies are obviously going to have to take precautions. Maybe they'll have teams on and off certain weeks. Maybe people will be going into work one day a week, like, like what will happen with schools. But the mm. point I wanted to make was regardless more men are working from home during this period. More men are on Zoom at this period. More men are at home with their kids in the background during this period and trying to cope with the fact that those kids are going to walk through the door and show themselves. And, oh, wow, he is a parent like, like a lot of other parents out there. So um, yeah, hopefully we'll see less of the, uh, you know, I would like to see the women and the men be seen as heroes in that situation. So mm. it's not just the men who get that. I mean, I'm really disappointed to hear that example that you shared there, Georgie. I mean, I just think like right now, if there's any time when it should be to be expected and Hey, mm. let's all make a bit of a, a, a fun and joke about this because if this is really hard. It should be now. Yeah, exactly. I think that's exactly right. And I think also people being men being home more in particular, I think aside from the actual working from home and juggling the kids I think it also makes so much of the domestic work visible for the first time because I've always known and thought that it would be really possible that if you were in the sort of traditional stereotypical worker mold and you got up and you left the house at around 7 30 in the morning and you didn't come home until maybe 6 30 or even seven o'clock at night you are completely oblivious to how many times children need to be fed how much mess they made how many meals need to be prepared all of the work that goes into just basically keeping the house at a baseline has been invisible. And I think now it's, there are lots more people who are in the home who are seeing exactly how much um, work is actually done from home, even when you're not talking about paid work. And I think I'm really hopeful that that will have some sort of longer lasting impact. Yes, I hope so too. Like I also hope that ice cream truck will <laughs> depart our street and move on. <laughs> um, so, um, Finally, uh, so I did say that this conversation would be kind of jumping all over the shop and talk about a wide range of things, but we are going to uh, go to each of us now and talk about one story or, or, or issue or whatever it is that is on our minds this week. So Shivani, I will start with you. Yeah, look, one of the things that's on my mind and, and it's one of the things that's sort of troubling me, and I think I mentioned this, you know, in, in podcasts as past, I, I do have concerns about the, the steps backwards that we're taking in feminism and progress due to COVID-19. Um, and in addition to that, one of the things that's concerning me in that is the very gender pay gap. Of course, 
you know, through this crisis, um, many um, reporting agencies around the world have actually ceased reporting. So, for example, in Australia, the Workplace Gender Equality Agency, um, I never know how to say it for short. I say Wijaya. I don't know if that's how everyone else says it or not, but uh, forgive me if I'm saying it wrong. Um, of course, you know, they have um, delayed their reporting for organisations to send through, you know, what's going on in, um, you know, in terms of the gender pay gap and, and their compliance needs. Um, and so too have other similar organisations around the world. In the UK, reporting has been suspended since March of this year. And if you think about it in overall context of COVID, of course, that makes sense, right? I mean, HR, any business that actually have the privilege of being open, they've got so much on their hands right now, um, you know, they don't need an additional pressure of reporting, and I totally get that. Um, the concern that I have, though, and we know this time and time again, right, what gets measured gets done. And when um, when the pay gap itself is not being measured, and we know that over the last 12 months in Australia, it's been stubborn at 14%, it has been relatively unmoving, um, you know, will that go even more backwards? And if that does, then the impact for women is going to be a double whammy, right? Um, you're going to have a lack of economic opportunities as it is right now anyway due to COVID-19. And on top of that, the opportunities that, so, you're, so we're all fighting for limited amounts of opportunities, so that scarcity makes it harder. But then on top of that, you then have the fact that the opportunities that you do get on average, you're going to be paid 14% less for, depending on the industry that you work for. If you're working you know, finance or IT, it's even more of a, of a gender pay gap. So I hold some real concerns around this, and I think that it's really important of course, we need to give these organisations time um, to be able to, you know, get back on track. But after that, that we make sure that everyone is, um, you know, on track and, and, and getting to measure these really important numbers in any organisation that need to step back up, do so. Yeah. Um, Shivani, as you were saying that, I was just thinking about how when Widji, I mean, they, they released the, the data with um, the ABS around the the standard um, gender pay gap, which I believe is at 13.9% at the moment. But then they also release that industry by industry uh, gender total remuneration gap, which takes into account bonuses and other factors. And that's where we see that, say, like the finance industry and insurance, I think, uh, might be leading. I can't say for sure, but I know that theirs is pretty bad. And right now, I mean, you think if one thing is going to be impacted right now, it is people's bonuses. So we are going to see massive changes in that in 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 that data so i don't know how it works i mean i think they released their last georgia you'd know this their last one was 2019 i think it was november 2019 so mm. it would happen again it's every two years is that correct or do they go to every no year? they do it every year in november okay so they, this i mean yeah, it would be sad to think that we miss the opportunity to see how much of an economic downturn actually then goes and impacts women's pay yeah because i'd say yeah, it would exactly be exactly right and with the delay in reporting i mean it doesn't necessarily mean we're not going to get any reporting at all in 2020 but we do know that the um you know um there is going to be a delay in it and and it could very really mean that there is no measurement for 2020 and when that is let up again there are some concerns around um do we go backwards uh and if we go backwards i mean it takes so much of a push mm. to, to move forward um you know, it's, um, you know, to go backwards, what's going to end up happening is if we end up going backwards and let's just say the gender pay gap on average is 14%, um, of course, as you've said, Angela, it's, it's the average, right? It's all the different industries have different gender pay gaps. Um, and then, you know, it is averaged into one. So, um, you know, if we end up going forward to say, you know, 14.5% um, and then we end up improving, then we'll, you know, people will start saying, hurrah, we've done really well as a nation, but we haven't, we've just, you know, come back to where we used to be. So, 
um, I, I think it's just something we need to be incredibly mindful of and stay on top of. Mm-hmm. So Georgie, what's on your mind this week? Well, what is on my mind this week is thinking about and talking about the difference between male and female leaders. And I realise that this is an unusual um, position for me to be in because it's something we've been talking about a lot on this podcast, but also on Women's Agenda, just because there has been a lot of information released um, in recent weeks about how um, countries that are being led by females have been responding um, more effectively to COVID-19 than men in terms of the proportion. So we know that there are far fewer female leaders, but the countries that are led by women are doing proportionally better than other countries. Um, And then Christina Zawicka, one of our regular contributors, wrote a piece this week sort of making the case for moving away from those broad generalisations about male leaders and female leaders. And I thought her piece was very good and there was a lot in it that's quite thought-provoking that I agree with. Um, But the other thing that I can't quite reconcile is that we know that there is no single female experience just as there is no single male experience. But we do know that across the board, women face different lives their experiences are different for a variety of different factors the course of their lives in economic terms and social terms it is different from men and so then it's not I don't think too crazy to suggest that there might be some sort of commonalities in the way they then do lead you know I I I don't like those sort of really tired stereotypes that women are more compassionate than men and you know, I think, I think men are capable of being incredibly compassionate as are women and some aren't, and that's perfectly fine. But I do think it's hard to divorce the sort of common female experience from the leadership of women. Um, and so it's just something I've sort of been trying to get my head around about where I think I stand. Um, I personally would love to get to a place where there were so many, you know, there was an equal number of male and female leaders and therefore the gender was not at all relevant to their leadership, but the sort of Mm. particular qualities of them as an individual is what um, is discussed and and thought about. Um, And obviously another part of this picture, and and you were the one who pointed this out, but there is a a graph that's being shared on social media that is showing this, um, the curve in terms of um, COVID-19 related deaths in the four Scandinavian countries. And Three of the nations have really flattened the curve and they haven't recorded that many deaths at all. Sweden um, has taken a very different approach. They haven't enforced any lockdown and they've recorded um, almost 10 times as many deaths as the other Scandinavian countries. Three of those nations have got female leaders. One of them doesn't. It's Sweden. You know, does that matter? Is that indicative of the reason that they've taken those different approaches? I don't think you can probably be that simplistic, but how can you look past that when it's such a sort of stark mm. picture in terms of, and look, to be fair to Sweden, um, they have sort of basically said they are approaching this differently. They're attempting a version of herd immunity. The price for herd immunity is a lot of deaths. Um mm-hmm. Their under their view, the you know the view that they're saying is that ultimately they think over time they'll have less deaths because there won't be a second wave, and obviously we'll have to wait for time to see whether that's correct. Um, but certainly at this point, I think it's hard to overlook the difference in those countries' mm. approaches and and the impact that it's having on their citizens. 
Yeah. I mean, the one mm. thing there that really stands out to me for Sweden is that that is a huge gamble <laughs> to say that they're going to go for herd immunity when we don't even know, we don't know enough about how, our, how we react to this virus. We don't know necessarily if you can get it again. We don't know mm. if a vaccine is even possible. So, I mean, we want to hope and we think, but the scientists are still saying that, you know, we've been trying to get a vaccine for many other viruses that haven't been possible. So what's to say that this one's definitely going to happen. So, um, yeah, a huge risk. Um, and also I do think, it, uh, look, obviously this won't come as a surprise to anyone. I'm not a scientist, um, not a, certainly not a medical scientist or a medical researcher, but I know the point that they are making, and obviously since I've shared this story, there's been a lot of people in my feed trying to tell me, you know, to, to, to try and explain why perhaps Sweden has a point in what they're trying. But that, so for example, in Singapore, which we saw responded really well initially um, to COVID and flattened the curve, and it's now experiencing sort of a second wave that's being quite um, dramatic. My understanding is that what Sweden is saying is that they'll somehow avoid that. But I don't know whether there is any... that. The data certainly doesn't suggest that they're anywhere near plateauing. And as you said, without a vaccine, herd immunity is not really possible. So yeah. it is a very big, it's a risky decision. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, we don't know for sure if, I mean, it, how long you'll be immune to it after you have it as well. So I think that's, yeah. that, that's I mean, we've only been living with this virus for a few months, so we just don't know enough about it yet. So it is a huge risk. And I mean, one thing I would say about Sweden is that when you think about the fact that they everything is still open and you do look at its death rate, it, it doesn't look as, it's, it's not like Italy's death rate. It's not like the death rate that we're currently seeing in New York. So I don't know, this is, it's all just such a, a mystery how this all works. But at the same time, I just think that taking those huge gambles and those risks when people's lives are at stake, it just, I can't, I can't not look at that. So, mm. yeah. Um, so on what's on your mind this week so same thing that's always on my mind climate change so um <laughs> women's leadership in climate change and interesting related to what you're talking about georgie is um i guess well i've been having a number of conversations with women climate leaders so including um so zali stegall and uh kim mckay and um carol Unger from uh action aid and we've been talking about the need to really keep climate top of mind during the pandemic and I think it's interesting if we see how women are responding to COVID-19 to think about then how essential women's leadership will be for the climate crisis as well. So that is in my mind a lot at the moment and I want to do a little bit more writing around it. And we're talking about a women's agenda also, how we keep a record of how women are responding to COVID-19. And I think it would be something that we need to keep there and keep thinking about when we do look at climate because we can't actually ignore climate change at the moment. It is still occurring. Um, you know, obviously we, we, we look at some of the figures that show that emissions might be dropping, but, you know, climate change is still happening. And right now it is creating, um, this is how Carol put it, it, is creating a triple threat at the moment, particularly for um, women and girls in developing countries, especially when they've got COVID-19, they've got the economic fallout from COVID-19, and they're also dealing with an increase in climate-related disasters. So, um, yeah, thinking a lot about women's leadership. I also recently interviewed um, Christiana Figueres, and I've put that published that Q and A this week, and she is so amazing and so inspiring. And go mm. and read her book. It's called The Future We Choose. That she's just published just prior to COVID nineteen. Um, she was instrumental in the Paris Agreement, which you know brought together business leaders and NGOs and 
um, I think it was 175 UN recognized countries together to sign that agreement and a whole thing. And this goes back to female leadership, I think is where we can really look at it and identify it as being important is um, when she's just a collaborator, she really worked with people and negotiated and collaborated to make that agreement happen. And she comes from this conversation, which is so important right now um, from the perspective of optimism that we have to remain optimistic at the moment, because if we don't have optimism, then what do we have? So on my mind at the moment, go read that book. It's great. So anyway, and also do read your interview with um, Christiana because it is a fantastic piece. And I agree where she is. um, She's so powerful. I think when you listen and she's so wise. Yes. Yes, she really is. So thank you so much, Georgie and Shivani another week so (laughs) i will see you from isolation next week enjoy your weekends yes and shivani i'll be looking forward to our weekend long lunch in about three years time (laughs) oh can't wait there's a a bottle of champagne there ready to get vintage with our names on it 2023 (laughs) all right okay bye guys Bye. bye